0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 130. Before opening it, someone know how this psalm opens? Psalm 130. You can shout it out. Out of the depths I cried cried to you. Martin Luther said this was one of the best psalms. He listed four psalms that were the best, and this was among them. When Luther was being afflicted by the devil, he said, let's sing that psalm out of the depths. And this is how we'll mock the devil. Luther's always talking like that, if you know anything about Luther. Now, he took the devil seriously. Today, we could take the devil a little more seriously, right? You could call this the the out-of-the-depth psalm. And as you look at it, as we move along, it's a short psalm, eight verses. Out of the depths we cry. Out of the depths we wait. Out of the depths we watch. And out of the depths we hope. There's a good reason that this is one of the first psalms that the band in Bloomington, they wrote this to music. And to particular people, it brought hope hope and encouragement that you cannot imagine. And so we're going to get a chance to sing that, sing this psalm after the sermon this morning. The psalm ends with great hope in verses 7 and 8, but we got to see that the Lord had brought the psalmist to the depths first. That's where we begin this psalm. If the psalmist had not been in the depths first, he may have never known the hope that came later. And isn't that true? We often pray when we're in the worst conditions. Think about your prayer life. When do you cry to God? Well, how in America, how often are we just content and happy? We're rich, fat, and sassy, right? That's often when we forget our Lord. When we're secure. But think of all the greatest heroes in Scripture God formed them to be who they were when they were in the depths. Think of Joseph, who we've been reading about. This is one of the most amazing stories to follow Joseph's life. He was in prison. David was exiled. Jeremiah was thrown in the well in the depths. Daniel was in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. Jonah was in the whale. Think about the smell. Talk about the depths there. Paul was imprisoned. But is the psalmist only writing about a literal deep place? Can you only relate to this psalm if you've been thrown in a dungeon or swallowed by a big whale? Anyone here this morning? Yes, what did it smell like? He's writing about spiritual darkness, mental darkness, when the soul becomes more and more sorrowful and despairs. But the worst depth, you'll see as we open up this psalm, you'll see that he's writing about the depths of his own sin. Out of the depths, the depths of your great sin. How quickly in your life, you've been sitting confident, you've been going as we think to ourselves, going on a good streak, not at least in too dark of sins, right? We're going along, and then you crash. Suddenly you've fallen into gross sin again. You know, gross sin's like pride. Like, oh, at least I'm not like other people who truly fall into gross sins out of the depths. Some of us here are in the depths right now. So this is a song of ascents you see at the top, Psalms of Ascent. Anyone know? Psalms of Ascent were sung by worshipers as they walked the road to Jerusalem and ascended the stairway to the temple to attend the annual festivals there in Jerusalem. So let's open God's word now. Please stand while we read Psalm 130. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Please be seated. Verse 1 opens up, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. What can we do in the depths? Think about it. You're in the depths. What can we do? All you can do is cry, but let us cry to God. How anxious are you when you're in the depths to cry to other people, to cry with a drink in hand? You know, there's an old country song: "There's a tear in my beer." But there's a reason there's a tear in your beer. The beer's not going to cheer you up, and it's not going to answer back with comforting words. And we can cry to other people. That's okay. But don't be surprised when you cry to other people and they're still going to sin against you and they're still going to let you down. We put our hope in the Lord in a way that we cannot put in other people. Think of Job's friends. Anyone here read through Job? Any of the young ones read through Job? Kind of, sort of? Well, his friends... He just turns to them eventually and says, Some lousy friends you are. I'm in the depths right now. When you're in the depths and you cry, cry out to God. But he seems so far away. It's not like if I'm crying to Patrick, I can reach out and touch Patrick, and he can put his hand on my shoulder. But God seems so far away. Does He even hear me? Does He even care? Nobody listens to your cries like God does. And nobody cares like He does. He formed your little pieces together in your mother's womb. All the hairs on your head. Nobody cares like God does. Not your kids. Some of us want to confide in our kids, right? Not your parents, not your friends, not your husband and wife, though you love them dearly. What's nice about crying from the depths is we don't stay there. When you're in the depths, it's only up from there, right? But of course, when we get proud again, the Lord may bring us right back to the depths so that we'll learn to cry to him again, so that we'll learn to depend on him. (laughs) Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The psalmist asks the Lord to hear him. And the Lord hears, but remember, never forget, the Lord will answer the way he sees fit. And that's very difficult for us. We should not receive everything that we ask for. Here's how James puts it You do not have because you do not ask. Well, I ask, I ask him to listen to me, and I'm in the depths. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's often the case with our prayers. Here's here's how Nehemiah puts it, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. So the psalmist has the Lord's attention. Lord, I'm crying to you. Lord, hear me. Be attentive. He's got it set. So where does the psalmist go next with verse 3? Well, what do we do if we add the Lord's attention? What do we first come to the Lord with? Lord, hear me. My roommate has sinned against me again. Lord, hear me. My husband does not love me like he should. Lord, you have my attention. My wife doesn't respect me like she should. After he has the Lord's attention, where does the psalmist begin? One old dead guy I I read, he wrote that these next two verses, verses 3 and 4, contain the sum of all the scriptures. Verses 3 and 4 of this psalm. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist knows God, he knows himself, The psalmist knows where he stands with God. He's acknowledging that when he was in the depths, he deserved to be there because of the sins that he committed, not because of the sins of others. It's his sin that got him there. It can't be said enough, God is holy. He's not like us. And when it comes to sin, we're all on the same playing field we're guilty, and we're condemned. But this is interesting, the way the psalmist words it, if you, Lord, if you mark iniquities. Why does the psalmist word it that way? The Lord surely marks our iniquities, right? If, Lord. There's other evidence in Scripture, Second Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's pretty definitive, every last thing we've done. Or Jesus says in Matthew 16, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So what's the deal with this, if you should mark iniquities? Why does the psalmist word it this way? To be sure, the Lord does keep track of every single sin that we commit. Even you young ones here. Every sin we commit against others. Every deed, every word, every thought. The smallest little fib. You guys hear that word fib? It's not a good word. Don't use the word fib, it's called a lie. This is how we equivocate in life. We replace actual sins for made-up words that make us look like we're perfect little angels, right? So we're going to be judged, every deed, every word, every thought. So this if, here's what it means. For Christians, God does not condemn us every sin we commit. Praise God for that, right? Because if he did, we wouldn't be here. We'd be dead. He would have wiped us out a long time ago. How long-suffering God is that we've even had this many generations on the earth that we're even here. If God marked out sins with a strict and severe eye like a harsh judge Nobody here could bear it. We'd be dead in the blink of an eye. And so yet, what do we do? That whole strict and severe judgment against sin, I've just described how you and I are sometimes. Listen, every one of us here is guilty of a capital offense. Many capital offenses, actually. The wages of sin is death. We've sinned and we've earned death for ourselves. And yet the judge of all the earth who made you, who's the one who is offended, he is the one who forgives you. He sends his only son, who he loves, to die on the cross for those sins that you commit against him. That defines forgiveness. The good news is that God, the judge, could crush us and end us for our sins. Instead, he forgives us. Every single sin, every last one, forgiven. Those sins you committed this morning, rushing to get to church hollering at the kids. Those sins have been forgiven. So what do we think when we hear that? That's treading on dangerous waters, right? Well, preacher man, you need to be careful preaching that. Because if the word gets out that God is so full of forgiveness, then people are just going to be sinning left and right, and we're going to be sinning more. After all, he's forgiven those sins. Even the sins we'll commit this afternoon, right? You're in danger of saying we can do anything we want. We can live any way we please, and God will just forgive it. You're preaching antinomianism. Anyone define antinomianism for us? Well, the Latin folks can. Antinomian? That's right. Lawless. Lawless. But listen, unless you're preaching this gospel and accused of preaching antinomianism, you're not preaching the true gospel. Let me explain this. Martin Lloyd-Jones often talked about this in his sermons. Unless you're being opened up to the accusation of preaching antinomianism, you're not preaching the true gospel. So Lloyd-Jones goes out. If it's humbling to me and it's glorifying to God, then it's probably right. The true gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is humbling to me and it's glorifying to God. As opposed to all the other world religions, right? The other world religions bring us up and bring God down to our level. not with biblical Christianity, the gospel comes as this free gift of God, irrespective of what man can do. But someone might say, well, if that is so, then it doesn't matter what I do. But the Apostle Paul answers this, right, in Romans chapter 6. Shall we do evil or commit sin so that grace might abound? Because he's just been saying, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, right? Very well, says someone. So that means, let's go get drunk, do what you like, the grace of God will make it right. That's antinomianism. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Never. But justification by faith, the free grace of God, exposes antinomianism for what it is. Here's the false gospel. You can preach up here if you live a good life, if you don't commit certain sins, if you do good to others, if you become a church member. Of Christ church, of course. And you attend regularly and are busy and active. You'll be a fine Christian and you'll go to heaven. That's the opposite of evangelical preaching. Because it's telling men to save themselves. And this is rife in the church today. It's telling men to save themselves. Again, it doesn't humble man and glorify God. It brings man up. It's not the gospel. So, I ask you this morning, test the preaching you hear, wherever you are. Test the conversations you talk about with others. If you're not open to the accusation of antinomianism, you're not preaching the true gospel. Because you talk to those friends who you're praying for and they want to clean themselves up. They want to be able to do it by their own power. I still do, and it's not the true gospel. Preach it truly. He's paid for all of those sins. But yet, let me come back. When it comes to you with others... Sometimes you and I turn into judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to dealing with other people's sins. With us, remember, God's forgiven it all. We've offended him. So what do you do? You mark the iniquities of the people in your life. You keep a perfect record of all the sins of your boss You keep a perfect record of all the sins of your wife or your husband, your parents, your roommates, your children. You get exasperated at them, keeping a perfect record of all their sins. And so you grow bitter against the loved ones in your life. Now it's true, the Lord knows all the sins that we have committed against them. He knows them all. But he does not act out in anger against all of our sins. There is coming a day when we will all stand before the judge. We will account for all the deeds we've done in our bodies. But the love chapter, right? First Corinthians 13, we should all be familiar with. What do you remember from some of the things about love? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Or some say it, some translations, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Let's be done with keeping a perfect record of one another's sins. They can inform how we love one another, how we minister to one another. But when we act out in anger toward one another because of it, That's not like God. The psalmist, he knows that he does not measure up to God's standard. He's aware of all of his sins. That's why he's in the depths. He's not keeping a perfect record of other people's sins, but he comes to God and he knows his own sins. And so he confesses his sins. He says about his own sins what God says about them. Lord, hear my prayers. Lord, hear my confessions. Lord, please turn your eyes away from my sins. They're terrible. Father, forgive me. But there's another ditch that can be followed into, fallen into here. It's one thing to know and to confess sin, but we move on to verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you, Lord, that you may be feared. In verse 3, the psalmist confessed that if the Lord should mark iniquities, none could stand. But he doesn't stay just there. He now confesses, there is forgiveness with the Lord. For some of us, it's difficult to get there. Well, I'm confessing, I'm in the depths. There is forgiveness with the Lord. Again, you can't whip up forgiveness yourself. It comes from the Lord. Only with the Lord. Stop and think about that for a minute. No other place in the whole world, He's the only one who gives redemptive forgiveness. We're all seeking it, we want to be forgiven our sins. The people we see every day, you see it on their faces. You see them weighed down. And we seek forgiveness in many places, but forgiveness only comes one way. Exodus 34, God keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Psalm 86, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call on you. But again, you've heard before, the devil delights in swinging us into ditches. There are ditches on either side. We want the plumb line. Is there forgiveness with the Lord? Absolutely. The only source of redemptive forgiveness. So does the psalmist stay there? Forgiveness, grace, he cannot stay there either. He knows himself. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Like we were talking about earlier, may it never be. Jesus in Matthew says, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And nobody fears God like those who have been forgiven of all their sins. You read the old dead guys and you think, Man, where'd they come up with this stuff? They knew the sins that they had been forgiven of. Nobody fears God like those who have been forgiven of all their sins. And that's not how we would word it. There is forgiveness with you, Lord, so that you may be loved and cherished and adored. Right? There is punishment with you, Lord, so that you may be feared. That's more appropriate, right? There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so we fear God knowing that only he forgives. Verse five, therefore, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. Nothing is worth waiting for like waiting for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord is really hard work. We've been trained and raised in a culture of instant gratification. We hardly know what the word wait means. Anyone testify to that with children? But we're the same way. We want something, and so we get it now. We have Amazon Prime, so we can have free two-day shipping. Or next-day shipping. Or same-day shipping, with little drones flying over our heads. Forget shipping. I know it's available at the store right now. I want that thing now. It costs more. That's fine. I don't care. I want it. I got the money for it. My family needs me at home. They can wait. They can learn waiting right now. I want this at the store and I want it now. (coughs) Waiting is hard work. A lot of people waiting out there for different things, right? You've prayed about those things. God's so cruel to keep them from you. Nope. No, he's not. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. It has to be repeated. We want a definite time on waiting. And we want that definite time to be short. And in fact, we just can do away with the waiting entirely. And go take it for ourselves. Because that's the American way. For when we're little kids, little ninos, you see this. I want that toy. Now! Especially if my sister's holding it. Even though I wasn't interested in it when she wasn't holding it. So I'll cry until I get what I want and dad and mom will cave in to my selfish wishes. Waiting? I don't even understand what that word means. And God's like a sweet old grandpa handing out candy, everything I cry for, right? He knows what we need. If God immediately gave us everything we demanded of him right now, this world would be a darker and much sadder place. Waiting for the Lord is one of the greatest things for us. It tests our faith and teaches us patience. We named our first daughter Adelaide Patience. More so for our benefit. You know, when you get angry with the kids, you yell out the first and middle name. Adelaide Patience! Oh yeah, I need to be patient, don't I? Waiting teaches us that God is the boss. And that we are to submit to him. And that he gives the blessing in his good timing. And sometimes, at least from our perspective, it's a long time. A pastor, when I was a kid, he was always praying, Lord, have your way with us. That's a good prayer. Lord, have your way with us. I prayed that many times. That's a dangerous prayer. Have your way with us. In your timing, it's dangerous. Lord just might answer that. The Lord's people are always known as a waiting people. How long did God's people wait in Egypt in slavery? You know how long? 400 years. Ten generations in Egypt. So they got out. And they were straight to the promised land. Oh, that didn't happen either? How long were they wandering around in the desert? 40 years, a whole generation. Most of them died off before entering the promised land. God's people wait. God's people waited for the first coming of Christ, and now we wait for his second coming. And we're eager, right? Right? Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. I want you to imagine what it's like to be a watchman in ancient Israel. Think about what that's like. It's very difficult for us to understand war because we live securely right here in the Midwest. Right, We're not even close to a border. But especially you kids, I want you to imagine being a watchman. You know what the watchman did? While the city, while the village was sleeping, they'd stay up all night and wait to see if any enemies were coming. And they'd sound the alarm, enemies are coming. So you kids, I want you to do something tonight. Stay out on the front porch. All night long in the dark. Would that be scary? It would be terrifying. If I stayed out on the front porch, I'd be terrified. scary to be the watchman. It's an important job. So, if you were out there all night long, what would you wait for? Who said that? You would wait for the morning, right? When you start to see those streaks of red, the sun coming up, ah, thankfully, the morning. How eager you'd wait and watch for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. That's hard work. Wait for the Lord more than that watchman for the the dawn. Let's finish with the hope of verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Redemption. Who gets redeemed? Those in bondage get redeemed. Slaves get redeemed. Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God's people. Those who are not Christians are in bondage to sin. Absolute bondage. And that is a cruel taskmaster. But God's people would still be back in Egypt if he had not redeemed them, if he did not deliver them. And in his timing, God redeemed them. He delivered them with a mighty hand. And in his timing, he redeemed you from the life of sin. By the way, why did God deliver Israel? Do you remember what it says in Exodus? You guys remember at the beginning of Exodus what it says? The king in Egypt had died. And God's people were in bondage. And so the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, just like the beginning of this psalm. They cried for help. They were in bondage, and they had had enough. There were benefits to living in Egypt, remember? The onions and the leeks. Oh, they were done with the bondage. your life of living in sin, there are nice benefits. And then you're done with it. And so you cry out to God, I don't want it anymore. I don't want this life of bondage. Redeem me. In Egypt, God's people cried out to God. He heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he brought them out. How much more will he not forget his children for whom Christ died? He will not forget his covenant. As Pastor Bailey's been preaching, of all whom the Father has given Christ, he has not and will not lose one. That gives you hope. When you're in the depths, And when you're crying out to God, never stop reading to the end. In him is abundant redemption. He will redeem his children from all their iniquities. Let's pray.